You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Beth Shapiro, who is at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, also at UC Santa Cruz, and is the author of a couple wonderful books, most recently this one, Life As We Made It, How 50,000 Years of Human Innovation Refined and Redefined Nature, and also this one, How to Clone a Mammoth. <laughs> it's not exactly a how-to guide. If you're interested in doing it at home, you'll be disappointed, but it is fascinating nonetheless. Uh, welcome, Beth. Thanks for having me. Your most recent book covers a, a lot of ground. And I think the main thrust of it is that humans have been having a huge impact on the environment throughout the in, entire Holocene, right? It's ever since humans showed up on, on the scene, we've been making a huge impact on the world around us, on other organisms around us, either in, in an undirected or a directed fashion, altering the trajectories of evolution, sometimes into permanent extinction. And now we have technologies like genetic engineering and some people think of genetic engineering as sort of a, a discontinuity, right? As something that is new, that is scary, or I guess on the optimistic side, offers enormous potential. And I think in your book, you sort of emphasize the continuities to some degree between the new technologies and the old technologies. But you also have an optimistic note in the sense that humans seem to be much more conscious of the impact that they're having. And this means that we may be using these technologies in ways perhaps more carefully and perhaps more conscientiously than we were in the previous 100,000 years or so. I find this a, a very refreshing and, and, and balanced perspective. So maybe I guess you could start up by saying, when you started off your interest in bison bison, right? and when you started doing research on buffaloes, did you think that it would take you to where you are now, thinking about all the implications of genetic engineering, for example, or did you think that you were just going to be studying speciation and the evolution and extinction of species? It's an interesting question. I don't know. Does anybody as a first year PhD student really have any idea what the course of their career is going to be? I guess the honest answer is no, I had no idea. But I was embracing in taking on this study, I was embracing new technology in a way that the idea that DNA was preserved in organisms after they died was brand new at the time. The idea that we mm -hmm. could then recover that bit of DNA and use new tools to piece it together. These tools have gotten much better in the 25 years or so that I've been working in this field so far. You know, the amount of information that we can pull out of the remains of organisms that are hundreds of thousands, even a million years old, is really astonishing. And I don't think anybody in the late 1990s or early 2000s had any idea how much we would learn by doing this, how, how much being able to reach directly into the past and pull genetic data directly from the past, like a snapshots into history, was going to change the way we think about foundational things like what makes a species and how often do things that we consider to be species interbreed with each other and genes mm -hmm. flow between them. And then really, what were the many ways that our own species impacted the evolutionary trajectories of the species that we encountered along the way. I mean, we can look at the way species are today, how they're distributed, what they look like, and we have some idea of how they got there. But it wasn't until we could really reach directly into 
the ancient extinct populations of those different species. And we can really start to grasp how often and how permanently and how, how much really we were really impacting other species from the earliest days of people being around. So when we take a, a small piece of, say, a ancient rhino horn or, or an old piece of bison bone and we subject it to DNA analysis, we can more or less sketch out the entire genome of these critters. And then we can kind of compare it to our current creatures and see kind of what's changed and what's the same. But there's so much mystery there. Right? We don't really know which pieces of code correspond to which phenotypical characteristics, do we? I mean, we, we have such a long way to go, don't we? Yeah. I mean, we just, as in just last week, got the decoding, a more complete decoding of the human genome. This is by far the species that we've been most invested in recovering whole genome sequences. And, and this is not to say that we didn't know a lot about the human genome before last week, but there are parts of the genome the middles near the centromeres and the ends near the telomeres, where these intricate repeat regions where it just has the same sequence of a few letters over and over and over again. And the, the repeats go on for such a long time that there hasn't been any technology that's been able to span those until relatively recently. And what this team did was actually piece together extremely long reads of DNA sequences from technology called Oxford Nanophore that were able to read through these repeats. And we don't have telomere to telomere is what they're calling these types of genomes, meaning that it goes from one end of the chromosome to the other end of the chromosomes and gives us that whole long sequence. We don't really have that for taxa other than humans. However, it's possible to do that now. Not with something that's ancient. The key to getting this for humans is having really long contiguous sequences of DNA. But once an organism dies, the DNA sequences begin to get chopped up almost immediately after death by enzymes that are inside the cells and then by microbes that get into those cells and chew up the DNA. And this means that when I recover DNA from a piece of bison bone or an old bit of a leaf that we find frozen somewhere in the Arctic, the sequences that we get out tend to be really short, on the order of 30 to maybe 50 DNA letters long, rather than hundreds of millions, which is what was necessary to get these telomere to telomere sequences. So we don't know what all the genes are and the links between the genes and phenotypes. And we don't know this for humans. We certainly don't know it for non-model organisms. But a lot of what we've learned about the past kind of ignores that and looks instead at the parts of the genome that are neutrally evolving. These are the parts of the genome that can tell us things about when populations are growing or when they're shrinking or when two different populations or two different species come together and exchange genes. We can see all of that without knowing the explicit links between genes and phenotypes, which has been really useful to understand, for example, the impact of large-scale climate change on populations of herbivores. We don't need to know what genes are what to know that mammoth populations start to decline or bison populations start to decline or bison populations recover at some point. And this is what a lot of our career has been focusing on. What have been the impact of people and climate change on the size of populations, the distribution of species, the interactions between species? So this allows us to actually fill in a lot of the holes in our historical narrative, right? Because before, you know, we had archaeological evidence, we had geological evidence, you know, we had evidence of things like climate change. And then we have in the fossil records, we have 
and the, the remnants of these organisms, we can trace the, the rise and fall of different species, but kind of connecting them was difficult without genetic data. I mean, you spent a lot of the book talking about the, the collapse of many of the kind of megafauna and a whole bunch, there's, you know, a series of extinctions and there's one massive extinction. You refer to the, the blitzkrieg theory, and there seemed to be some debate over the role of humans versus climate change in the decline of these species. And without the genetic evidence, I guess it would really be conjecture. It would be kind of matching timing and so forth. I'll give you an example. Yeah. So I talk about this, the timing of megafaunal extinctions around the world is different depending on which continent we're talking about. And it just so happens that that timing coincides with the archaeological evidence of the first appearance of people in most parts of the world. What's difficult about this is that it also coincides in many places mm -hmm. with really rapid and large-scale climate changes. So in North America, for example, the first appearance of large numbers of humans happens around the same time as the transition into and then back out of the peak cold part of the last mm -hmm. ice age. And a couple of really rapid warming and rapid cooling and then rapid rewarming events. And so how do we disentangle the roles of these two motivators that can cause megafaunal extinctions. And it's hard. It's difficult to do. And I think actually it's difficult to do with the fossil record or with genetics. One thing that we know for sure, though, is that in some places in Australia, for example, where the earliest extinctions are, and on islands where the most recent extinctions are, there really isn't this two-factor problem. It really is just people. There's no evidence of massive climate changes at the same time as the Australian mass extinctions, but it is around the time that humans arrive. There's no evidence of massive climate changes on islands, for example, in New Zealand or in Hawaii, when we find extinction events, local extinction events, and yet these do coincide with the first appearance of humans. One thing that DNA can do for us that the fossil record can't is tell us about how recently declines happened. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in North America, I was studying bison for a big chunk of the early part of my career. And there were two main hypotheses about when bison lost all of their genetic diversity. And we know that they lost their genetic diversity because if you look at all bison alive today, they're really similar to each other. So this is evidence that there was a near extinction event in their past. We know that there was a near extinction event near the turn of the 20th century, because we know that there were only about 100 bison left at this time point. But we also know that there was a near extinction event maybe 13,000 years ago, around the same time as things like mammoths and horses were going extinct in North America. And we also thought, well, maybe bison didn't do particularly well around the peak of the last ice age, around 20,000 years ago, because this would have been bad for bison. The grasslands that they rely on would have disappeared at that time. So with DNA, what we can do is we can go back and collect fossils from the entire timeline, from today, from 100 years ago, from 1,000 years ago, from 15,000 years ago, and from 20 and 30 and 40,000 years ago, and ask, based on the genetic diversity, when do we see this extinction happen? And in the early 2000s, when we first did this, we were super surprised by the result, which told us that all of those hypotheses were wrong. That, in fact, bison started to decline somewhere around 30 to 35,000 years ago, 15,000 years before the peak of the last ice age, at least 10,000 years before evidence of people in this part of the world, and way before the most recent near extinction event around 100 years ago. And this probably had to do with, it's a time in the past called marine isotope stage three, which was a really tumultuous time, colder winters than now 
warmer summers, highly seasonal. And we do see that the grasslands are disappearing and being replaced by sort of scrubby tundra. And we also see now that around this time that the grasslands disappear, bison start to become suppressed and horses temporarily take over because horses can eat all that sort of garbage that, that bison can't and use that to make more horses. But then after the ice age, it starts to warm up again, the grasslands come back. And because bison can reproduce more quickly and more efficiently turn these resources into more bison than horses are able to do, bison then outcompete horses, Horses become locally extinct in North America and bison hang on and manage to survive to the present day. And then luckily avoid becoming extinct around the turn of the 20th century. <laughs> and all of this we can learn with the combination of looking at fossils and getting DNA from the fossils that remain. You know, one central theme in your book is the massively destructive impact that humans have had on environments, particularly when they first show up in, a, in an environment that they have not previously been a part of. So, I mean, this is going on even to this day, right? We talk now about the decline of insect species. You talk in the book about slugs and snails disappearing. So it's not just kind of the big megafauna, but it's even like different little tiny critters, insects and so forth that are, are being wiped out by the human footprint. Yes, it's clear. When we look outside, we're in the middle of the, the sixth mass extinction event. You know, we have had an impact on every ecosystem on Earth. I would say, you know, that there are some arguments in, in conservation that what we really need to do is stand back and remove ourselves and give nature time to recover. I would argue that this is, in fact, where we probably need to capitalize on whatever resources we have, whatever tools and technologies we can, because the truth is that our footprint is at this point too large. We can't stand back and let nature recover because it's too late. The pace of change in ecosystems across the world is now faster than evolution by natural selection is capable of keeping up. So if we are going to change our ways, as it were, to make decisions to stop the mass extinction event or to do what we can to mitigate the, the consequences of this ongoing extinction event, then we need to look to our technologies, technologies that have been developed for things like agriculture and conservation and ask ourselves, what can we do? How far are we willing to go? Do we trust our technologies? Do we trust ourselves to be able to think through the potential risks of using these technologies and also the risks of not using these technologies? Right. So I think we basically said to the other species, listen, you have to evolve to be compatible with us or you're going to go away. Right. And we've kind of helped them along through selective breeding, made them more useful to us. And I suppose that that is a remedy for some of these species that are on their way to extinction. You know, we can maybe use a little bit of selective breeding. You mentioned that bison now have a fairly large amount of cattle gene inside of them, which presumably makes them a little bit more better adapted to, you know, the landscape. Actually, it might not be that large. We don't actually know. We do know that in the early 20th century, there were efforts to breed cattle DNA into bison to make them more amenable to being manipulated by people, but also be as hardy as bison were. And we don't really know about the amount of cattle DNA that's in bison. We think there's different amounts of cattle DNA in different herds. It's a question that we're actually working on right now in my group. 
But you're talking about things that we manage. And I just want to make the point that this is true, not just for things that we are directly manipulating, but also for things that we are purposely not manipulating. Think about how we deal with conservation right now. We like to think of conservation as being hands-off. We're going to let everything have the space that it needs. But in fact, what we're doing is we're deciding where everything gets to live, which individuals get to breed, how large their populations get to be. We vaccinate them to prevent disease. We cull them to prevent overpopulation because we don't have lots of predators anymore. And, and so even conservation, our management of things that aren't deliberately being designed by us, are in fact being designed by us. Our footprints, our handprints, our fingerprints, I guess, are on everything that's out there, even the species that we're trying to protect and preserve. And I don't think that's a bad thing. And when we think about the way that the world is right now, humans are like an enormous selective force. What you just said, I'm just going to repeat because I do think it's true. The species that are alive today and are thriving today are those species that are best adapted to live in a world that's dominated by people. The natural selective environment of the planet today is one that includes people as a dominant force and the stuff that we do as the dominant interferer of the world that everything lives in. And so those species that are thriving are those that do best in that environment. And if we want to maintain a world that is biodiverse and filled with people, we need to identify ways to help other species to thrive. Okay, so I think what you're saying is that an approach to kind of species conservation that involves kind of fencing off an area, calling it natural, and then trying to keep the human influence out is going to be inadequate and that we need to kind of use all of the tools and techniques that we have available to us in the world of science to kind of promote that goal and that simple, you know, benign neglect is, isn't going to do it, isn't going to be enough to kind of either preserve what diversity we have or restore the diversity that we're looking for. Yes. I mean, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do this. I think it's a great idea to identify places that we can protect and preserve and leave as natural as possible. I think it's actually critical to coming up with ways to protect and preserve habitats and species across the world. But I do think that in many cases, we have habitats that are changing at a pace that is far faster than they can adapt. The temperatures are changing, precipitation patterns are changing, storm patterns are changing in ways that if it were slower, if we could stand back for thousands of years and say, okay, evolution, now you have time and you have all of this diversity left with which to work, then maybe that would be enough, but it's not. And so we may need to do things like deliberately move individuals between locations so that we can exchange genes and improve the amount of diversity that's there. One of the really fantastic examples of what's happening right now I don't know if you're familiar with Revive and Restore. It's a nonprofit out of Sausalito. I have a conflict of interest. I'm on their board directors. I think what they're doing is wonderful. But they have been collaborating with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and some academic partners and the Frozen Zoo, which is part of the San Diego Zoo Consortium, and working with black-footed ferrets. It's a little carnivore that used to be super abundant across the plains of North America nearly went extinct. In fact, they were thought to be extinct until the population, one population was discovered near Matitsi, Wyoming. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife, they were on the endangered species list. In fact, they were one of the original endangered species. So as, as soon as this population was discovered, they established a captive breeding program, figured out how to make it work, and they can captively breed loads of black-footed ferrets. They release them into their habitat every year. This is a success story, except that the Black-footed ferrets are not actually saved because of these more traditional approaches to conservation. And that's because of plague. 
which was introduced into their habitat from Europe as colonists expanded across the Midwest. They catch a prairie dog. The prairie dog has plague and they get plague and they die. They can be vaccinated, but they have to be recaptured and revaccinated. This is not a sustainable conservation program. But there is another solution. And that comes from some of these new technologies, the same technologies that one would need to develop if we were really going to have something like de-extinction or whatever you want to think about in terms of de-extinction. But in the frozen zoo in San Diego, they have black-footed ferrets that have been frozen tissue samples from a different population, not the population from Petitsi, Wyoming. So their genetic background is different that have been frozen for nearly 40 years. And a couple of years ago, Revive and Restore, along with the frozen zoo, along with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, was able to clone using the same technology that brought us Dolly the sheep and using a domestic ferret as a surrogate mom. But one of these frozen black-footed ferrets and Elizabeth Ann, this cute little perfect black-footed ferret, was born to a domestic ferret mom and she will soon become part of this captive breeding program. So her DNA, because it's different from the others, which all come from seven founders, she will be the eighth founder, but the only one that comes from a different population of this lineage. So this sort of strategy allows us to reach into the past before this near extinction happened and bring some of that genetic diversity that's extinct back into this population, which should give them a fighting chance. And there's another solution as well. And that is that the domestic ferret, which was the surrogate mom for Elizabeth Ann and an evolutionary cousin of the black-footed ferret, is also naturally immune to plague. And so Revive and Restore and some partners are currently trying to figure out what it is about the domestic ferret genome that makes them immune to plague. And once they've discovered this, and as you said, we are far away from understanding the links between genotypes and phenotypes and lots of species, but it is something that we know how to explore and try to figure out at this point. And once it's discovered, the idea is to use gene editing technology to transfer that bit or those bits of the domestic ferret genome into captive black-footed ferrets, transforming them by making them a little bit genetically engineered. Their genomes will be almost entirely black-footed ferret with a little bit of domestic ferret and therefore able to live in an environment where plague is a problem and survive thanks to a gene or trait that evolved in their evolutionary cousins. So this is just one of the ways that I imagine that we should be thinking about how to use these technologies. What if we could discover genes that made some coral species better able to survive in warmer or more acidic waters? We could then transfer those traits between populations, helping corals to be able to survive in a rapidly changing habitat. What if we could come up with or discover genetic traits that make birds resistant to avian malaria and then be able to transfer that to Hawaiian honeycreepers? It's science fiction at this point. We don't know how to do this, but we're beginning to develop these tools. And they are different from the traditional ways that we have been manipulating species. But they're also potentially critical in our ability to protect and preserve a world that can be both biodiverse and full of people. Evolution through directed breeding on the part of humans is presumably much faster than the kind of evolution that happens kind of out in nature. You know, genetic engineering offers something of a, of a shortcut. So is this, in fact, something radically different? I think people in Europe in particular are terrified of the notion of genetically modified products and so forth. What are they concerned about? And, and I know that the Asilomar Conference, people did discuss some of the dangers of genetic engineering. But you argue that, that 
we have in place kind of mechanisms to protect us and that fears are somewhat overblown. Could you talk about how does genetic engineering differ from selective breeding and how is it really kind of very similar to selective breeding? That's an enormous question. <laughs> I could speak for two hours answering that question, but I don't have two hours, so I will try not to. It would be disingenuous to say that going into a genome and making changes directly is the same thing as selective breeding, so directed selection or natural evolution. And, and this is mostly because we can target very specific changes. But it's also true that genetic engineering is a huge bucket into which we can throw lots of different things. And I think what people have been mostly afraid of is the idea of moving genes between species and moving DNA between lineages without really understanding what the consequences of that might be. There are fears associated with making directed edits to the genome as well without understanding what the consequences of those might be. But common sense asks us to stand back a little bit from that. By that, I don't want to ever suggest that I'm going to fault people for being afraid of something that they don't understand. I think that that's completely rational and reasonable and a safety mechanism for keeping ourselves healthy and alive and our planet healthy and alive. So yes, let's keep asking questions and pushing back against things we don't understand. But what I think is really important in this space is that we step back and allow for some understanding. And right now what's happening is there's a lot of noise disseminating falsehoods, saying things that really aren't true about what we can do, about what people are doing, and about what isn't going on. For example, the USDA in the U.S. has approved the use of something called gene editing to create new varieties of things. Gene editing doesn't mean moving genes between species, but it does mean using our technologies to do things like turn a gene off or turn a gene up or stop a gene from functioning in a particular time. And this is, so there's no genes moving between species. And the reason the USDA has approved it or decided to not, not to regulate this family of technologies is because these are the types of things that could occur in nature should enough time be given for it to happen. So if you bred enough things together or did enough things at one time, then you might get these changes. These are shortcuts. It's a shortcut. So there's a Japanese company that's created a tomato that makes three times as much of the GABA protein, the heart healthy protein as a regular tomato. And they've done this by turning off a gene that stops the production of that GABA protein once it reaches a certain level. So instead of a normal tomato development, it makes the protein and then it gets to a certain level and this gene turns on and stops it. So it just stays right there. They've blocked the production of this gene so it could just keep making more and more and more and more of that GABA protein. So this might have occurred in nature just by breaking this gene. No genes from other species have been introduced. It's something that is completely cisgenic. There's no trans genes or genes from something else. People might still be a little bit worried about this. And in Europe, this wouldn't be approved because this is something that involves using DNA. But weirdly, what is approved in Europe and has been used for a very long time is something called mutation breeding, where you either zap the crap out of your whole bunch of little mm. baby plants for as much as you want to create as many different mutations inside those genomes as possible. Then you grow them up and you see which ones you like and you take that and you say, this is my new plant. That process introduces tens of thousands, maybe more mutations at the same time, none of which are characterized or known. And we have no way of characterizing mm. or knowing what they are, but those are considered okay. Whereas this process that introduces one 
very specifically known and well understood mutation is considered to be too scary. And I think this is not because rational people have looked at this and said, oh, this is actually scarier than this other thing where there's tens of thousands of mutations that we don't understand, but because of this cacophony of noise out there mm. telling us that we should be scared of this one thing without explaining to us that it is kind of similar to something that we've been doing for a really long time that nobody knows to be scared of. Mutation breeding has brought us things like green and wheat, brown rice, ruby red grapefruits. And when you go to the store and you can look on, along the shelves of the store and you see ruby red grapefruit juice that says you're GMO free or non-GMO project verified, that thing is something that we made by creating tens of thousands of mutations, not characterizing them and deciding we liked the product. Mm -hmm. I am not suggesting there's anything wrong with mutations. There's not. All of us have new mutations in our genomes that our parents didn't have. What I'm arguing against is the acceptance of that and the rejection of something that is equally, if not more, natural and safe that we can do more quickly that might be particularly useful for creating lineages that are better able to adapt and survive in the habitat that we have today. So I guess what you're saying is if one of the objections is around unintended consequences, right, if the concern is that we don't really know what the ultimate effects will be of this tiny genetic modification. What you're arguing is that, well, that may be true to some extent, but the more precise you are and the more specific you are with respect to the modification, then the less likely it is to be a concern. Yeah. And there are unintended consequences of everything that we do. When we breed two organisms together to create something else, there are unintended consequences of that. And there are always risks. And I do think that we need to come up with ways to evaluate risks and regulate things that are potentially more risky than others and, and evaluate risks before we do something and then evaluate the risks of releasing something before we release it. But there is also a tremendous risk that we take when we simply reject these technologies because we're not willing to try to understand what their potential is. I mean, we are looking at a future where we have to try to feed billions of people more than the amount of arable land on our planet can currently support. So if we're not willing to evaluate and take some risks to get technologies that will allow us to do this, we are accepting other risks with other potentially dire consequences. Well, we talk about genetic diversity and species diversity as if it's kind of an unalloyed good thing, but obviously there are certain species that we're not too keen on keeping around. And, you know, you talk about some of our efforts to eliminate things like malaria and to reduce the number of mosquitoes in the environment. I found these to be among the most interesting and valuable applications of this new science. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that, because all of the approaches that we've used have been fairly ineffective. It seems like we're really, really good at exterminating species when we're not intending to do so, right? But we seem to have a difficult time exterminating the ones we really want to exterminate. Well, those species like mosquitoes are particularly adapted to living in a habitat filled with people. You know, what do they need? They need little bits of, of water that we leave lying around. Our garbage makes loads of nice homes for mosquitoes. So they have adapted very well to living with us. Yeah, there are a suite of technologies on the horizon that might be useful for controlling species. There's technologies called gene drive technologies. There aren't any gene drives that have been released into nature, and there aren't any gene drives that exist at the moment that we're really thinking of using. But this is a resource that I think a lot of people are considering and trying to work through the, the different risks associated with doing this. The idea here is that you would 
introduce a mutation into a population that causes individuals to not be able to reproduce. And if you introduce a mutation that causes individuals only one sex to not be able to reproduce, but then gets passed on through the generations, because obviously if both sexes can't reproduce, then it doesn't get passed on. It only works for one generation. Then this is the idea of a gene drive. So it would be to slowly cause populations to collapse and not be able to come back. There aren't any gene drives that theory predicts would be able to last forever in a population. This is because any mutation that breaks the gene drive would suddenly be enormously fit because the fitness cost to having it is no reproduction. So anything that breaks it is way more fit than anything that hasn't broken it. So population genetic theory really predicts that gene drives would not be sustained in nature for very long. So the idea would be, could we come up with something that is powerful enough? robust enough to be able to survive for enough generations to reduce the population to something that's controllable. And this is where a lot of research is going on right now. You know, releasing gene drives is something that really requires global consensus and buy-in because you really have to think long-term. What are all of the potential consequences of doing this? Who are all of the stakeholders that might be involved? Who should be involved in making these decisions? And I think fortunately, we're at a position right now where these technologies don't exist. And the idea is so far ahead that we are having these conversations globally with different stakeholders, not just scientists holed up in our offices at some university somewhere, but the people out there who would have to deal with the consequences of doing this. And this is really critical to making these technologies work. They are scary. It is fascinating to think that we could develop technologies that could drive the species to extinction. It's also very scary, right? And obviously scary. We should be nervous about things that break the rules of evolution in such a dramatic way. But I don't think we should outright ignore them. It may be that we can develop gene drive technologies that have maybe three to four generations of use sufficient to be able to bring something under control in a way that we could then help to mitigate the consequences of whatever's happening. I mean, we do have a huge disease burden that is really terrible for certain parts of the world. And if we could use our technologies to reduce that disease burden and save human lives and save agricultural lives, or even could we use gene drives instead of pesticides or genetically modified yeah. organisms that are out there that people are opposed to? Could we modify the insects in such a way that they didn't eat the plants rather than have to modify the plants in a way that may eat the insects? There's a lot of potential out there for these technologies. And they are in the very early stages of use. And my argument is that we shouldn't reject them because we fear them. Instead, we should work hard to understand what they can do and what they can't do and to build support for following through with research and discovery. So the way to evaluate them is to compare them to their alternatives. So, for instance, GMO versus pesticides gene drive versus DDT or something like that. Certainly that is part of it, yes. <laughs> well, in addition to promoting the restoration and preservation of the species that we want to preserve and getting rid of the species that we kind of want to get rid of, you've written about the possibility of restoring species that are no longer with us. And of course, the, the mammoth is the kind of poster child of this. But, you know, there's all sorts of other species that we would love to restore, some of which are not completely extinct, like the American chestnut, but others which are, in fact, completely extinct, like the mammoth. What are the specific challenges posed by that? I mean, obviously, I guess the chestnut is one which is an easier case, but for things like mammoth and maybe the dodo bird or the carrier pigeon, 
why are we even thinking about this? And what would it look like to do something like that? This is a, another big question. The, the truth is that once a species is extinct, you're never going to bring back an identical copy of that species. And anyone who's interested in de-extinction, the company Colossal that's just been formed to bring mammoths back. I mean, their goal is to create an Arctic adapted elephant because they understand mm -hmm. that mammoths are something that we can't bring back. The reason is because mammoths are more than just the sequence of the A's and C's and G's and T's that make up their DNA. They also were trained by other mammoths and they live in the environment of mammoths, which is gone. And they have a mammoth's gut microbiome, which is gone. You know, So if we want to use these tools, the tools of genetic rescue, to be able to recreate something that was, we have to imagine what it is that the goal is. If we want to bring back an elephant that's able to survive in cold climates, then we can try to figure out what it is about mammoths and the mammoth genome that made them able to survive in the cold climate, whereas their tropically adapted evolutionary cousins, elephants, can't, and then use the tools of genetic engineering to edit the genomes of tropically adapted elephants so that they contain those cold adapted genes. That requires understanding what those are, understanding what the pathways are, Coming up with a, an appropriate surrogate host, coming up with an appropriate plan for how to create a stratified community of Arctic adapted elephants. And you know, for every candidate species for de-extinction, there are different technical, ethical and ecological challenges that would be associated with that. And to my mind, the ideal best case use of these tools is to try to help species that are still alive today to adapt to their changing habitats to help them avoid a fate similar to the mammoth. Why do we keep talking about it? I think it's because it excites people. You know, the idea that maybe we can use technology to do something spectacular. It's just fascinating. It's an exciting thing. It's a positive thing. We live in a world filled with mostly negative things. So why not imagine some future scenario where we've done something good with the technologies that we've developed? And if we learn something about conservation that helps other species to survive along the way, then I'm all in favor of it. One of the arguments that I've heard since Colossal was founded was that this is terrible because it's taking money away from conservation. And I 100% beg to differ. The money that has gone into Colossal is tech money that wasn't in conservation at all prior to the founding of Colossal. Conservation needs all the money that it can get. And I welcome people who are willing to throw money at this interesting and challenging problem that will discover things that are going to be useful to protect and preserve species and habitats that are threatened today. You know, one thing that's always struck me is that people seem to focus on species, whether it's Linnaeus on down, everybody's kind of focused on species. And so much so that if a species is determined to be less than pure, then people kind of lose interest in preserving it. Do you think we need to move on from this idea of species and we should just be thinking about traits and characteristics? And, you know, like you said, hey, let's just get an elephant that can survive in the tundra, right? I mean, why do we still focus on species? Is there a specific value about having these distinct categories? No, and it's not real either. As humans, we have this amazing proclivity to want to characterize things, to put them into boxes, because it makes it easier for us to think about them and to study them and to imagine their role in our world. But biology doesn't work like that. A brown bear doesn't wake up one day and discover that actually it's a polar bear and it's no longer interested in brown bears. That's not how anything works. So the idea of subspecies and subpopulations, et cetera, these are all human constructs that are there to help us to better understand how to live in a world that has these different things. Is it useful? It's useful from the perspective of managing them. The Endangered Species Act 
actually protects reproductively isolated units, not species or subspecies or populations or anything like that. And that's because we understand that these are constructs, that they're malleable, that there are no real borders, but that defining them separately allows us to designate an area where that particular reproductively isolated unit might live and then to focus on protecting and conserving that space and that habitat. And so it is useful. They're useful constructs for some things. They're less useful for other things. And I think you, know, you brought up the idea of purity, which I think is ethically dangerous in a lot of different ways. What does it mean to be genetically pure? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Brown bears and polar bears, happily thought of as two different species. But if they overlap, they will breed and they will make completely happy and fertile offspring. Humans and Neanderthals, we know. We would like to think of ourselves as distinct species, but we know now that as soon as humans and Neanderthals overlapped, or humans and Denisovans overlapped anywhere in the world, we interbred and passed our DNA to each other. Does that make us any less different? Does that make humans the same thing as Neanderthals? No. But does it tell us that the idea of species is a construct that's meant to help us out rather than be of hard and fast rule? I think that's pretty clear. Well, Beth, thank you so much for joining me. I think what's clear from both your books is that humans, whether we like it or not, are the custodians, more or less, of all the species on the planet. And it's our job to figure out whether we want to help them along or, or not. So um, life as we made it. As Stuart Brand said, we are as gods, so we may as well get good at it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. Hope to chat again soon. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.